This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. I could kind of sit and watch that for quite a while, couldn't you? It's just amazing. What an amazing story. And uh, welcome to church. Those are the guys we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, But before I do that, I want to say to you a couple of things. First of all, I hope for all of us, for everyone here, that this is the most significant and meaningful Christmas that any of us will have experienced to this point. And there's probably no reason why it couldn't be if we chose to make it that way. I can tell you this for sure, that with the conditions in our world, uh, have you noticed people are taking a little bit more serious look at life? I think all of us are. That's not all bad. It's actually a very good thing. So I just want to invite you into that process that, that this year, maybe with your Christmas a little less commercial and a little less material, that it might be more from the concept of just the amazing spiritual realities that are wrapped up in the story of Christmas. And uh, welcome to church. My name is Ron. If I didn't get a chance to meet you and this is your first time here, I'll be hanging out in the lobby afterwards. And please come by and say uh, hi or hello before you get out of here. I'm uh, on the pastoral staff here, and it's my privilege most Sunday mornings to get to speak to you out of the Bible. And uh, this morning will be no exception. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 and a few other places this morning that uh, speak into the story of, of, of Christmas Uh, On the inside of your program, you will find a half sheet of fill-in-the-blank notes. You can take that out now and use the pencil uh, that that you have available to you to fill in the blanks as we go along. And uh, welcome to a study of Christmas along the way. The whole idea behind Christmas along the way is that all of the major players in the Christmas story were just normal, ordinary people going about the business of life when God sort of ambushed them and said, hey, you want to come along on a great adventure with me? And as it turns out, it was the central adventure of the human race, although they didn't know it on the way in. They just knew that God was inviting them to an adventure. And, and that's kind of how it is in all of our lives. Have you ever noticed that sometimes things that turn out to be really, really significant in your life at the time that they were happening didn't seem to carry that much weight? And then looking back, you realize, oh my goodness, that was a major turning point. Many of us who are married will remember the first date we had with the person who's now our mate. And and we weren't thinking, many of us at that point in time, Golly, this is a turning point in my life. I should really mark this date down on the calendar. We were just going to see a movie. But it turned out to be a really significant date. I want to share with you that part of what God wants to do in this Christmas season and part of the adventure He wants to invite you on is this wonderful sense that if you're in tune with God and you're willing to open your heart to Him, any day could be a life-changing day if you embrace all that God brings into it. In the story of the Magi this morning, I can tell you there's a wonderful promise we're going to look at and there are two huge challenges. And the promise is for you and me, just like it was for them. And the challenges are available to you, and they're available to me. And yet a very small percentage of people ever actually pick up that challenge and run with it and ever get to reap the the wonderful rewards that come from accepting that challenge. Because for many of us, we look at the challenge and we think it's either too big or too far outside the box. And we sort of just dismiss it. Well, I hope in the next 30 minutes or so for us to get to a point in life 
where we throw our heart open to those challenges. Because if we do, this will be the most significant Christmas season that we've had today. In many ways, the Magi are the most unexpected players in the Christmas story. And I left some room in your notes for you to write down some things about the Magi because, well, let's go over some of the reasons why. I mean, if you and I were putting together together a story of a man who was going to be born, who's going to be the king of kings, and he's going to be born as an Israelite, there's just no way that, that we would ever invite these guys along for the party. First of all, uh, the Magi were not Israelites at all. You, you probably saw the way they were depicted in the movie. They were actually from a land about a thousand miles away, and it wasn't an easy thousand miles. It was over a desert. They were from ancient Persia, near Babylon, which is actually in modern-day Iraq. Okay? So... They, they were not Israelites at all. They were worshipers of the god Ahura Mazda. You ever wonder where Mazda came up with that name? It wasn't Zoom Zoom, okay? Okay? Ahura Mazda was actually the name of their god. And they were Zoroastrians. So they didn't even worship Jehovah, the god that you read about in the Bible. A third reason they were, uh, were probably unlikely players is they were Zoroastrian priests. You know, when the second guy came up in the movie and he knelt down and he said, frankincense for the priest of all priests. I can't tell you he said that for sure. That part's not in the Bible. But it's very interesting to think about because the guys who came were priests of the Zoroastrian religion. It was their job to guard what they called the eternal fire. It was their job to recite hymns from their religious tradition at the most important times of the day and during the most important days of the year. It was their job to offer sacrifices. It was their job to preside over the burying of the dead. They were Zoroastrian priests, and yet they get a personal invitation from God to travel a thousand miles and be part of the Christmas story. Now, they weren't just Zoroastrian priests. They were the highest level of Zoroastrian priests, and the king had given to them vast lands because of their position and vast authority, and so they were extremely wealthy. That's a really important part of the Christmas story, as you'll see a little bit later. They were, they, um, our word magic comes from this word magi. Because they used various forms of what we would call divination. And in fact, in some um, ancient manuscripts, the word magi is actually translated sorcerers. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that God would invite someone to become part of the Christmas story whose search for the truth is taking them way outside the boundaries of what God would instruct and would really want to accept. They were into not only astronomy, but they were into astrology, something God absolutely forbids, the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And yet, for reasons that we could only guess, God invites these guys to come and be part of the Christmas story. What's even more amazing is we don't know how long their visit took. It took a long time to travel a thousand miles, especially across the desert, or if they went around the desert, it would be several hundred miles more. It may have taken them the better part of a year to make the journey. 
And it may have taken them the better part of a year to go back home, and yet they may have been with Jesus only a few minutes. Seems unlikely that they stayed overnight. Can you imagine journeying almost a year through what all they journeyed to get there and to gaze on the king who is actually but a a small child at that point and to be there only a few minutes maybe and to leave your gifts and to turn around and take almost a year to get home and when you get home you're really excited and they're going, what are you all jazzed and pumped up about? We saw the king for 10 minutes. You were gone for two years to look at something for 10 minutes? Wow. Kind of any way you look at it, these guys are the most unexpected players in the Christmas story. But I can tell you in some ways, they add such significance to it. And this morning, we're just going to look at three things. But they are, the first is a promise and the next two are challenges. And they are lessons we can learn from the Magi. So let's go straight to the Bible and begin to read. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Now Bethlehem was a small town in the southern end of Israel and Judea would be the rough equivalent of a state in, in, in our nation. However, because Israel was such a tiny, tiny country, 35 miles wide by approximately 100 miles long, when you divide it into thirds, it's not even really as big as a county. You understand? But uh, So Bethlehem of Judea, during the reign of King Herod, about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, that's all we know about the origin of their trip. So, right off the bat, I want to clear up a couple of sort of myth traditions that are out there. And and I hope that this doesn't wreck anybody's nativity scene that you have at home. All right? But I, I do at least believe that you deserve the truth, all right? So let, let, let's, let's start with the truth that goes right up there with Santa Claus and the rest of that, all right? Uh, let me give you three kind of myths. Notice in this passage, it does not say that they followed a star from the east that led them all the way to Israel. What does it say? It says, we saw his star as it arose and we have come to worship him. Now, what star would that be? Well, let's go to an Old Testament prophecy back in the book of Numbers, and you'll see uh, exactly what we're talking about. A star will rise from Jacob, a scepter, and and a scepter, everyone understood, was was the symbol or the power, uh, a symbol of the king's authority or power. So a scepter or a ruler will emerge from Israel. How would these guys, who were Zoroastrian priests, ever be aware of that? Well, Babylon, the the area where they lived, was was, uh, the capital of, of a nation that had conquered the nation of Israel and had actually deported all of its citizens to Babylon. And then 70 years later, Uh, A a lot of the citizens from Israel went back to their homeland and reestablished the country of Israel. But a significant number of Israelites stayed in Babylon and they formed Jewish colonies there. And so even at the time of, of Jesus' birth, there was a very large Israelite and Jewish population in and around the city of Babylon. And so even the Zoroastrian priests would have been pretty familiar with the teaching of the Jews. We don't know for sure that they knew of that passage, but quite likely they did. But at least it doesn't say they followed the star. Now later on they did follow the star, and I'll show you where the Bible says that. So there's myth number one. Myth number two is this, okay? And that is that there were only three wise guys. 
Okay? The Bible doesn't say, I know, you know, there are what? Melchior, Balthasar, and what was the other one? What is it? I can't remember and I can't hear it that well. Okay? Uh, anyhow, um, we don't know how many there were. The tradition says there were three because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, just don't bet anybody on that because you'll probably lose, all right, in a trivia game. The third thing that, that uh, is kind of a myth and a tradition is that they showed up at the stable or the cave, as you saw there, at the same time as the shepherds. I know that's the part about your nativity scene. That, that I hate to disappoint you, but they actually showed up probably sometime later, maybe significantly later, maybe even as much as two years later. don't have time to show you all of that in Scripture, but basically when King Herod found out from the, from the wise men that there was a king that was born and the wise men left on a different route and Herod figured out he had been swindled, not swindled, but he had been uh, uh, stood up, why the Bible says that he went to Bethlehem and had all the baby boys two years of age and under killed based on the time he had learned from the wise men. So uh, apparently there was a two-year span of time in there. Um, So there you go. Now what can we learn from all this? Because that's probably way more important. Here's what I want you to learn. Number one is this. God enabled them to connect the appearance of the star with the birth of the king of the Jews. And you've got you to transport yourself a thousand miles away to a completely different religion, to guys who were into astrology and astronomy, and they're looking through their telescopes one day, and they see a star rise in the sky. And they're going, dude, you see that star? What's up with that? That's not supposed to be there. And look at that star. Where did it come from? Now, somehow between the discovery of this star that they saw rise, I don't know if there was a Jewish helper nearby who said, Oh, I can tell you what that is. Let me show you what my Bible says. It says, you know, back there in the book of Numbers, that a a star will rise out of Jacob and a scepter will come out of Israel. And that represents the birth of our king that we've waited for now for over a thousand years. I don't know, but somehow God enabled them to make that connection. Do you realize how important that is for you and me? Here's the application principle. Take a look at it. When we are seeking the truth, God will make sure we understand what we really need to know in life. I'm delighted that you've come to church this morning, and I'm delighted that you obviously are seeking truth in your life. And and if God would go a thousand miles away to some priest in some foreign religion who were involved in divination, but because they were seeking the truth, He would bring the truth to them, knowing that they would travel a thousand miles, actually two thousand miles round trip, in obedience to that truth, then God went way out of His way to make sure that they got that connection. You know what that means that God would do for you and me? That same Jesus that they came to worship is the same Jesus that you and I need as our Savior. And if we're willing to seek the truth, God will make sure that He brings someone or something or some person into our life that will actually speak the truth to us. That's a wonderful promise. Take a look at this passage of Scripture in which God delineates that. Jesus himself said to his 12 closest followers, There's so much more I want to tell you. So much more. But you can't bear it now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. You know what that means this morning? There's not a person sitting in the audience who could handle all of the truth of life at once. 
Can you imagine how, how tough life would be if you came to God and said, Okay, God, show me the truth, and He just dumped it all on you at one time. And we couldn't make that journey. That'd be like trying to jump the Grand Canyon in one fell swoop. We'd never make it. So you know what God does? God parcels out the truth to us a little at a time, knowing exactly what we can handle because He's preparing our hearts to receive it. That's such a comforting message. Now, I'd be the first to tell you that sometimes He dishes out enough truth that it's not necessarily convenient for us to handle or easy for us to handle. It stretches us to handle it. And we'll see that in action in in these guys' lives. But He gives it to us as we can handle it, and He makes sure that when we're seeking it, we get it. That's the first lesson of the wise men. Let's take a look at the second one in Matthew chapter 2. They said, We saw His star as it rose, and we have come to worship Him. Just underline the we have come to worship Him part. Because that's what I want you to get. Now here, here's the second uh, lesson we can get from these guys. And that is, they brought their most precious possessions to give to the king. There's a huge lesson in that. You see, every morning when you get up, you and I are faced with one question in life, and it's the fundamental question of what that, that will determine what we're going to do with that day. And, it, and you can wrap it up in two words, self or selfless. Every day you have to answer that question. When I get up in this day, am I going to use the 24 hours that God gives me in this day to invest in myself, to do the things that I want to do, to accumulate things for myself, to make sure other people do for me what I think they should do for me? Am I going to invest in myself or am I going to take this day and selflessly give it away and bless others? you got to answer that question every day. And can I tell you the sad part is, all of us have a default setting. It's our natural, and you know which one it is? Yeah, you figured it out, right? Yeah. We wake up every morning with a needle pointed towards self. That's why you're offended when your alarm clock goes off. (laughs) Many of you have an anger test right there. Because what does self say? What's wrong with right here? Yeah. That, yeah, every day. I want you to con- consider with me a couple of things. Number one, when the Magi saw the star that rose, and, they, and, and God made sure they connected it with the birth of the king of Israel, do we have any instruction that God said, now get up and go? Not that I know of. I'm not sure that they had to leave their homeland and take a 2,000-mile round-trip journey across the desert. But they chose to. And even if they chose to go and visit the king, did they have to bring a gift? Not necessarily. And even if they brought a gift, did they have to bring the most precious thing that they owned And if you were to go back and study their culture, you would find out that gold, frankincense, and myrrh were all mediums of exchange. They were their forms of money. They didn't actually have to do all of that. But you know the really cool thing is? Because they chose to do that, they ended up with the most fulfilling and significant experience of their life. Can you imagine what they were telling their grandkids later on? You could take all the other vacations they ever took, all the other things that they ever did as Zoroastrian priests, and they faded into insignificance compared to the journey of a lifetime. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. 
I, want you to, I don't want you to miss the application principle. And here it is. Real life is found by investing our resources. That's our time, our talent, our energy, and, and our money, our material things. Real life is found by investing our resources in others. Not spending them on ourselves or hoarding them. Can I tell you, that's one of the biggest challenges in life. I'll guarantee you, that's one of life's largest challenges because every day we wake up and we think, if I could just buy something for myself, I would like this day more. If I could just do something to pamper myself, I would like this day more. And yet, the witness of history and the teachings of Jesus are all pointed the other direction. But boy, is it hard to walk against the flow of our nature and our culture, isn't it? You're not so quick to say amen to that, huh? It is hard. It's very hard. What a significant challenge. Now, take a look at what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you cling to your life, if you say, my life is mine, I'll do with it what I want to, my life is about me, my life is for me, when I wake up in this morning, I'm going to do the stuff that I want to do, and I'm going to go to the places I want to go, and I'm going to find ways to buy the things that I want to buy, and you know something, by golly, as I go through this life, I am not going to get shortchanged, because I'm going to make sure I get what's coming to me. If I cling to my life, what did Jesus say? You will what? You lose it. Man, you will end up to be nothing. <laughs> All you football fans, that's the Terrell Owens school of life. <laughs> if you've been following football at all this week, you know exactly what I'm talking about. By the way, does he strike you as a happy guy? You think he's found the source of real life? He can't even find football, let alone real life. Yeah. But what does Jesus say? And if you let your life go, if you're willing to give your life away, have you ever, have you ever heard anybody say this? Love is such an amazing thing because the more of it you give away, the more of it you have. It multiplies by giving it away. Can I tell you that's just that's not true of just love? That's actually true of life. If you are willing to give your life away in service to other people, if you're willing to give your life away as a volunteer, if you're willing to give your life away so that you can bless and help other people, I tell you, you will find more life than you can ever imagine. And the wise men gave their life away. I got the most precious thing that they knew and they said we're giving it away and they did then Jesus said you will save it you will actually find it lesson number three is this the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was and when they saw the star they were filled with joy now, kind of piecing the whole story together, these guys are looking through their telescopes one day. Oh, dude, what's that star? And somehow they get it connected that that's, the, that that's connected with the birth of a king in Israel a thousand miles away. And they look at each other and they say, let's go see him. Wow. I mean, if God showed us a star, the least we could go see is the person that that's his star. So they saddle up their camels and away they go. And, and, and they're going. They don't know where they're going. They're just going to Israel. They're not actually following a star at that point because they go straight to the capital city and they get a personal audience with King Herod and they said, hey, where is he who's born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And Herod goes, what? There's a rival to my throne? Herod calls for the religious leaders and said, um, 
You guys are always talking about a coming Messiah. Got any idea where he's supposed to be born? They said, oh, absolutely. There's an Old Testament prophet, Micah. You go to chapter 5 and verse number 2, and it says very clearly that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So Herod goes back to, to, the, to the Magi and says, hey, the answer is, if there's any king born to the Jews, he's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. So guys, do me a favor. If there's a king born to the Jews, I want to worship him. So as soon as you find him, would you come back and tell me where he is? Now you and I know Herod's lying. Okay? I was going to say a bad political comment at that point, but I won't. All right? (laughs) You might be able to put it together, however. Uh, Anyway, so they head off to Bethlehem. It's not that they're following any star, but the cool thing is, as they start journeying toward Bethlehem, guess what happens? The star that they had seen in the sky somehow comes down to earth and begins to guide them. I don't know how they recognized it was the same star. And by the way, it's my personal opinion that they were probably the only ones who saw the star. You know why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, if a star comes down out of the sky and starts bouncing along the horizon, you think there's only three people going to be following that thing? There'd have been thousands of people there. So guess what? When they see the star, they're going, look, that's the one we saw in the sky. And look, it's guiding us. Well, they recognize that's the provision of God. So they're just following the star. And guess what? It comes to rest right over our house. We'll pick it up there. So they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here's lesson number three, and this is another huge, huge challenge. Here it is. They gave their gifts in spite of the not-so-king-like conditions surrounding Jesus. You've got to remember, these guys have come to worship the king of kings, right? And the star is guiding them. And they're thinking, this is great. This is great. We're going to see the king. We're going to see the king of Israel. And, and it stops over a house. What's up with that? And they think, well, the inside must look better than the outside. Because Joseph and Mary... This is not their hometown. They're staying in a rented house for all we know, probably a rented house and probably not a very good one because when they offered sacrifices around Jesus' birth, they offered the sacrifices that God only allowed poor people to offer. So there's not a whole lot of cash flow there. I want you to think with me for just a minute. You are the highest level of priest in your home country and you have been given vast lands and vast wealth and God has enabled you to see the star that is connected with the birth of a king of a country a thousand miles away and God invites you on a journey to come and worship not 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 just to to visit but to worship him as the king of kings and you are bringing your most precious gifts to this king of kings, and your journey ends at a two-bedroom, one-bath bungalow. And you walk inside, and there's a very ordinary woman there with a very ordinary-looking child. You know what I wrote down in my notes? Faith versus gut. What would be your gut inclination? You talk about a stupid journey. (laughs) It's a good thing we don't have cameras. Can you imagine getting back to your home? Now they didn't have cameras, but can you imagine? You get back to your homeland. Hey, show us the pictures of the king. Let's see a picture of his palace. That's a what? 
You know, now here, here's an amazing thing. I want you to contrast with me for just a minute the response of the Magi with the response of the Israelites themselves. Did the Jewish nation ever really accept Jesus as their king? No. They rejected him. Why? Because he wasn't what they expected. And furthermore, he wasn't what they wanted. They wanted this powerful monarch who would sit on a beautiful throne and, and, and rule the world and call all the Jewish people to be his principal leaders and managers. And they would become fabulously wealthy and the most powerful nation in the world. And instead, they got a humble teacher who sat with them and put his hands on them and forgave their sins and taught them how to live as they should live. They're like, who wants that? And they rejected him. The Magi, who traveled a thousand miles, you think they were any less disappointed in what they found? Did they come and find what they expected to find? No, they didn't. They found the opposite of what they expected to find, and yet they had a choice, and that was, am I going to accept what God has led me to, even though it's not what I expected, and probably not even what I wanted, but it is what God has led me to? Am I going to accept it, or am I going to reject it? And friends, the same choice is yours and mine. We get to choose to accept what God has led us to, the truth, even though sometimes it's not really what we wanted, but in the end it turns out to be great, just doesn't look all that great at the time. Or reject it because it isn't what we wanted and it isn't what we expected. Here's the application principle. By the way, as we look at it, do you realize that the gifts that those guys gave were probably worth more than the house that Mary and Jesus were in. Imagine that. You know what they're thinking? Buy yourself a house. We don't know for sure what, what took place with, with those gifts, but here's what I think. Um, then kind of the next major event in the story is King Herod is going to come and he's going to have all the, the, the male children two years of an age and under killed in and around the city of Bethlehem. And Joseph gets warned in a dream of God to take Jesus and Mary and to flee down to the country of Egypt and to stay there until God invites them to come back to Israel. And I believe that the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, it, that's how God financed that trip down into Egypt and staying down in Egypt and finance their return and maybe there was enough left for them to be able to buy a house in Nazareth where they would eventually live. It's God's way of providing for that. Can't say that for sure, but that seems to be the most practical application. Here it is. The greater the test of our faith, the greater the fulfillment when we obey. And I'm going to come back to that at the very end as we close. But you know, right now we're going to do something very, very special because it just is so in line with everything that we've been learning this morning. In this church, every Sunday, we remember the Lord's death through communion. I want you to think with me for just a minute. The Magi travel a thousand miles and they end up at a two-bedroom, one-bath, probably a two-bedroom, no-bath bungalow. It's so far beneath what they expected. And it's so far beneath what they actually, what they would have considered deserved because of who they were and the gifts that they were bringing. And yet, they gave them. Oh, but on a much, much grander scale. I want you to consider with me the king of heaven and earth who made a journey not a thousand miles from one country to another, but a journey of who knows how far from heaven to earth. And what did he find here? Did he find what he deserved in his people? Or was it much, much less? He found a bunch of sinners 
who mistreat each other and live selfishly and can do some terrible things. And he brought the most precious thing he had, his own life. And he gave it. That is the Christmas story. Those of you who were doing the 21 days of prayer just yesterday, we read out of the book of John a passage I want to point you to on the screen. It's in John chapter 6. I think we're getting there. Well, while they're finding it, I'll give it to you, okay? Jesus has just, well, as he's teaching, there's a crowd of some 15,000 people or so who come to listen to him. There were 5,000 men that we know, plus women and children. So probably 15,000 plus, and, and he's teaching them, and they are so drawn to his teaching that they stay there all day. And and when Jesus gets ready to dismiss them, he realizes that they are ravenously hungry. So he turns to his 12 apostles and says, feed them. And they look at him like he's lost his mind. How in the world is that going to happen? We could work all year and not make enough money to buy just the food it would take to feed them an ordinary meal. And Jesus said, well, what do you have? And they looked around and Andrew brought a young lad and said, this dude's got a lunch. And Jesus said, what's in the lunch? And there was five little barley rolls in there and two small fish. And Jesus said, perfect. He said, have everybody sit down. He had them all sit down, divided them up into groups of 50. And then he took those five little barley loaves and those two fish and he prayed over them and he said, now take it and give it to all the people. And, and so they, they started giving it to the people and... God did an amazing thing. He just kept multiplying the food and multiplying the food and multiplying the food. And they fed all 15,000 of the people. And then when everybody was done, he sent sent the, the apostles out with baskets and said, now I want you to pick up what remains, which is why every church takes up an offering these days. That's not true, okay? (laughs) That's not true. But it does sort of remind you of that, right? And so... They passed the baskets around and people put in whatever they had left over. And there was 12 baskets full of, of what was left over. And then Jesus went up in the mountain to pray and the disciples left and went across uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it was a big storm that arose that night and Jesus walked to them on the water. Fascinating story. If you've never read the story, it's in, it's in John chapter 6. And, and those of us on the 21 days of prayer journey, we read it yesterday. And then the people get up the next morning and they're looking for Jesus. And they realize he's gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they all jump in boats and they row across the Sea of Galilee, which is probably, it could be anywhere from 7 to 12 miles, depending upon where they were going. That's a long ways to row a boat, by the way. And they get over there and they find Jesus. And Jesus gives them a famous sermon called the Sermon on the Bread of Life. And in it, he says, I want you to know this. I'm the bread of life. And they said, you know, we want to believe and follow you, but could you show us a sign? Uh, hello. <laughs> Feeding 15,000 people with one little kid's lunch? Is that not a sign? But I want you to hear the sign that they wanted. They said, our ancestor Moses gave us the bread of heaven. We saw you multiply the bread of earth, but you know what we'd really like? We don't want just bread yesterday. You know what we'd really like? Bread every day. So we don't have to work. And then Jesus began to say to them, I want to point you to a truth. You know your ancestor Moses and all the people that he was with? You've overlooked a slight problem. They all ate that food, and where are they today? They all died, didn't they? Yeah. Jesus said, I'm bringing you a food 
that's good for eternity. And then he said a very interesting and challenging thing. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they were going, how can this guy give us his flesh to eat? But you know what Jesus was saying? Take a look at his flesh. What did he do with his flesh? He gave it away. He used his hands to touch and heal other people. He used his hands to lift and encourage other people. He used his hands to place on the children and bless them. He gave his life away through what he did with his body. And in the end, his hands and his body was pierced as he gave his life for them and for us. And what about his blood? His blood was the source of his life. And what Jesus was saying is, if you want real life, life that's not only here, but life that counts in eternity, then you have to do with your flesh what I'm doing with mine, and and you have to do with your life what I'm doing with mine. And that means, unless you take me inside of you, unless Christ lives in us and begins to change us from the inside out, we'll never discover real life. At this church, we remember that every Sunday. So in a couple of minutes, the uh, ushers will be passing trays through the audience. And if you choose to, to invite Christ into your life, and you choose to honor Him, and remember what He did with His life, and to thank Him for it, then take a portion of the bread, take one of the, the cups of juice, pass the tray to your neighbor, and when your heart is, is prepared, then eat the bread in his honor and drank the cup in his honor. If you're not ready to do that, that's all right. Just pass the tray to your neighbor. Certainly no one will think less of you, but begin to process the Christmas story and what it means that God would leave heaven and come to earth for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the amazing gift of your Son, the gift of your life. And even as the Magi came and encountered way beneath what they felt like they deserved, they gave their gifts anyway, just as you came from heaven to earth and you gave us the amazing gift of your life. Father, we bless you for that. We thank you for that. And right now we honor you in the way that you have prescribed. And we pray in your own great name. You know, as we close, I want to draw you back to the adventure of a lifetime. That's, that's an adventure that God calls all of us to. He may not ask us to travel a thousand miles across the desert sands. He may not ask us to, to bring treasures of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. But you know, the, the invitation that God gives is no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter where you might be today, that God throws out an invitation for you to join Him on the journey of life. And the promise that God gives is if you get on board with Him, if you really get on board with Him, you have no clue where He's going to take you. But at the end of your life, you look back on it, And you'll be absolutely amazed. These guys went on the adventure of a lifetime. And in the process, they found fulfillment beyond their greatest and wildest expectations. First of all, they got to follow a moving star. How would you like to tell that to your grandkids? You think you kids think you're cool? God brought a star down out of the sky and guided me where he wanted me to go. That's pretty cool. Secondly, they got a personal audience with King Herod. That's pretty tough to get. They got one. Thirdly, they got a personal audience with the King of Eternity. Wow. Next, they also became the first human beings to bring gifts to Jesus. First recorded gifts we have. They brought them. 
They got a personal dream from God because when they got ready to leave, God said, now listen, don't go back and tell Herod. In fact, I want you to go home a different way. They got a personal dream from God. That was pretty cool. They returned home buzzing about what they had seen and heard. But you know the cool thing is, did you know that the gospel was taken to Persia in the first century and virtually the whole country became Christians? That's what history reveals. But can you imagine when one of the twelve apostles showed up and began preaching salvation in the name of Jesus? Can you imagine these three guys? I can well imagine they were the first to become Christians because they saw Jesus. They brought gifts to Him. And they would be the first to say, I can testify He's the King of Kings. This morning, that's the invitation God gives to you to come to that same conclusion about Jesus. And I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer right now. Um, Would you... Father, for every single person in our audience this morning, uh, many of us have made that choice. And some days we, we, well, we don't live in total harmony with that choice. And so we come acknowledging that and saying, Lord, please forgive us. And would you help us today to get up and, and to take self and put self aside and invest our lives in selfless service to those around us so that we might find real life and let go of our lives. And, and Father, would you help us climb over the things that you've guided us to that, that we kind of didn't expect and, and, and maybe even didn't want, and yet they're part of your great plan for our life. Help us not to stumble at that point or to turn back because it's kind of too far outside the box. But would you help us to move forward? And then, Lord, those of us who've never made that choice, would you help us to see with clarity this Christmas? That the Christmas story is part of the eternal story of your desire for us to live with you forever. And so you came to give your life as the one and only Savior of the world. And would you help us to come and worship you by giving our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.